Welcome to the Global River Church Discipleship Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. So my wife's not going to be here tonight. She, she's not feeling well, but she said to leave my phone on for her to text me if I forget something. <laughs> so... If I'm looking at my phone, it's just to check her, whatever she has for me. So, Hi, Alicia. Love you. Uh, Lord, I, I just give you tonight, we just say, uh, Holy Spirit, come. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Give us your word so that we can know you more. We can, we can know how simple your gospel is. And we can, we can put down all of our religion. We can put down all of those false expectations when people say to be ashamed, when we're not good enough, we know that you're there to reach your hand out to us. So we thank you for that tonight, and we just come to you humbly and desiring to know you more. In Jesus' name. So the book of Romans. Uh, we, talked about, we talked about who it's to, the Roman church, a church that developed basically um, organically, uh, with what's been going on around the Mediterranean region and what the, the Jewish societies are do, dealing with and, and how they're interacting with the Gentiles in this time period. We talked about the um, Hellenistic Jews and how they were adopting Greek philosophies and starting to um, look for something new. Um, I feel, I think that in this moment, there was a spirit operating that was telling them there is something new, there is something fresh, there is a new covenant, and they, maybe they weren't, they didn't have that knowledge um, imparted to them yet, so they were seeking other avenues, which, but it made it easier for them to adopt this new understanding of who Christ was and what he did. I feel like it prepared them to move in the right direction, uh, to receive what Paul had in store for him. And it also gave a platform for the Gentiles to be, build relationship with the Jews um, in, their, in their communities and to become these uh, God-fearers, as they were called, to adopt um, this um, one God overall uh, religion at, at the time. Um, it was different than what they're experiencing elsewhere. So I think all of this was put in place for the transition into the new covenant. Um, it makes sense to me, but that's my flesh thinking. Anyways, so we talked about also the first week about how important the Book of Romans has been in the Reformation, in the Westland revivals. Uh, Roman was, Romans was always very pivotal. Um, there's a lot in Romans that is freeing. It's a book of freedom to me. When I, when I re read Romans, I was freed from a lot of preconceived notions, a lot of what was told to me or what was um, shared with me, you know, out of ignorance or whatever it was. Uh, it really freed me from a lot of those preconceived notions. So um, we're going to go into chapter 4 tonight. And I started reading chapter 4 in the uh, NLT. 
And I was kind of struggling with it. Um, so then I went to the, and I, uh, the NKJV, the ESV. I read it in multiple translations, and I just was, it was difficult for me to ingest it. Like, I can understand what the words were saying, and I can understand the thought that was behind it, but it just didn't quite absorb fluidly until I picked up the Passion. So tonight, I'd really like to start um, chapter four in the Passion, and we'll probably move around, actually, uh, to multiple translations. They all have their um, worth and their value. Um, so we'll, we'll probably bounce around a little bit, but we'll have everything up on the board for everyone to follow along, read with, and online as well. So, so why don't we go ahead and dig right in to Romans chapter 4. Actually, let's go ahead and back up a second. Um, we finished off two weeks ago, since we were in um, Virginia last week. Um, at the end of chapter 3, we, we come to this realization that does the law, does uh, the emphasis on our faith, does it invalidate the law? And that's kind of like the last thought we, we went to was, uh, you know, it, didn't, it doesn't in any way invalidate the law, but it really establishes the law's role um, to teach God's people what sin was. Um, so if you look at human progression, human race, you can, you can look around us and see all of our technology that we have today, all of our understanding of the universe that we have today, our communication with each other, our, how cultures interact. You can see all that we have today and compare that to what it was just 100 years ago. As a race, as the human race, we have grown tremendously in just 100 years. So we, you can see that that growth trend, we had to have been very immature at some point, right? We had to, we're, we're maturing as a race. So as you mature, you start out as a very young child, a very immature uh, being of sorts, and your interaction with your governing parents or father or wh whoever is different than how it would be in your adolescence or how it would be in your adulthood. So as a child, it's really hands-on. You're not, you can't really communicate to a child, a very young child, a toddler, if you will, how, why they have to do certain things. You, they don't get to make those decisions. They don't understand why. You have to usher them. You have to be very handsy. You have to direct them physically, put barriers up, physical barriers. And when they do amazing things, out of love, you know it's out of love, and it, it really impacts you as a parent. So, but then they get older and they start to understand there are rules. Why are there rules? So and when they move out of this childhood, they go into this adolescence, and now they're, 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 you have to put rules on them. They have to understand the rules, and they have to follow the rules. Maybe they don't understand why the rules are there, but they know they have to follow the rules. They know that you're not always there. 
So they have, you have given them the set of rules that they have to follow, even when you're not around, so that things will work to their benefit, as you see it. Not as they see it, but as you see it. And then as they grow out of this adolescent phase, you, they don't, you, you're not, you don't have rules for them anymore. They now understand the purpose of the rules, and those rules are instilled in their heart, and they make decisions based on what they know you would approve of. That's the way I see progression in the human race. We started out very young, very immature, not understanding who we were yet. And then we grew and we, and, and we got to a point where we needed to have this law to maintain our structure and to show us why, we're, what, what's broken in us, why we need, why we should, you know, these are the things that we're learning. And eventually the human race at the appointed time, which we'll read about the appointed time, Christ came to set us free because we were mature enough to understand the relationship that we have as a race. So that's kind of a nutshell what the Holy Spirit was showing me as we started in from uh, the righteousness, the law, the faith, and because this chapter goes right into Abraham and who Abraham was. In Abraham wasn't a Jew. He wasn't an Israelite. There were no Israelites. The Jews come from Judah, the tribe of Judah. They were the most prominent towards the end of the Israelites, so they took the traits and that, that they got their, the, Jew, the name Jew from Judah, from the tribe of Judah. Before Judah, they were the tribes of Israel. Before the tribes of Israel, they were the sons of Jacob. Before the sons of Jacob, they were the sons of Abraham. But there was no law before the sons of Jacob. There was no law. Actually, at the sons of Jacob, there was no law. When they were known as the sons of Jacob, there was no law. It wasn't until they become the Israelites, the 12 tribes of Israel, that the law was in place. So here we are well before God's nation was born. So there was no law. There was only what was handed down through, at this point, it was a, what I've learned is that it was through a discipleship program. Really, it was. It was, if you look through uh, Jewish legend, or you can even look into um, some older Jewish writings. Now, extra biblical writings, I'm not, uh, don't get me wrong. The Bible is whole. It is, it is what it is is God's word. It doesn't need anything added to it or taken away. It's, it's the truth. We know that now. We live by it. We understand that we ingest it as truth and lacking in nothing. But we do have, nowadays, we have writers, um, Christian writers, that kind of give us a little more understanding of what's going on in the Word. And we, we you know, we would read books by Leif Hetland. We read books by all these, you know, um, 
Um, help me out with some other authors. Huh? Kenneth Hagin. Yeah, yeah, there's authors, there are Christian authors that help us, they help facilitate. Tom Hauser, yes, Tom Hauser. But we read these books and we, have, we see value in them. They're not the Bible. They're not going to take the place of the Bible, but they help you understand what's in the Bible. They give you a little extra knowledge or understanding. So that's the way I look at these extra biblical texts that we might find in history. They're, they're in no way going to take the place of what the Scripture say. Scripture always has the final say, but it does help us understand what's going on in culture at the time. That being said, the book of Joshua is mentioned in um, 2 Samuel. And let's go ahead and go to 2 Samuel 1, 18. First Samuel. I was like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it says, Then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, and he commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of the Bow, and it is recorded in the book of Joshua. So, this is a book that was known at the time, and it has some inform, inter, interesting information on who Abraham was, and a, a timeline that kind of shows this discipleship. Um, after the, according to the book, Noah and Abraham's lives overlapped. So before Noah died, Abraham was of the age to be discipled in the ways of the one God the faith that Noah had. So Abraham was discipled by Noah. Abraham's sons were discipled by Noah's sons, Shem. So there's this whole storyline about how this knowledge of God, this faith in God, who, as far as I'm concerned, Noah made the most faithful act in the Old Testament. He worked for years toiling creating this monstrosity of a creation that no one has ever seen before for years, for preparing for something that has never happened before, that no one has ever seen before. He, I feel like Noah, really, he, his faith, his actions, his obedience to, to God his, was probably one of the greatest um, events that are recorded. So this man who has this great faith was able to disciple Abraham so he would learn what faith in God, the believer in God. Go ahead. You have something? Yes. So when you said that, really, whew, my heart leaped because early part of this year, I was inspired by the Lord to study 
uh, Genesis, through the old book of Genesis. And I was studying it and studying it, and I was inspired to specifically look at the life of these patriarchs. And I was inspired to plot it out. So I looked at when so-and-so was born and when so-and-so was born. So what you were saying is absolutely true. You just need to read the Bible. You see that Noah and Abraham, they would have seen each other. And he would have seen a lot of his children that were alive during that time. So the transfer of knowledge that he's talking about really, really happened. Because uh, Adam was alive when Noah was alive. So imagine the conversation between Adam and Noah about his interaction with God in the cool of the day. So I, yeah, I just wanted to add that. You know, you can study that. You find it's very fascinating. They saw each other because the guy lived to be almost 900 years old. Yeah. Thanks for that confirmation. So we start in uh, Romans, verse 4. Um, this is in the Passion. It says, uh, let me use Abraham as an example. It is clear that human, humanly speaking, he was the founder of Judaism. That was his experience of being made right. What was his experience of being made right with God? So the founder of Judaism, that kind of, I was like, what does that mean? And so I decided to go ahead and look it up in the King James. And he says, Romans 4, King James. He says, what shall we say about that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? So here he's the father. In ESV, he is our forefather. In the uh, new uh, messianic version, he is our father as well. So they're using this as a lineage. They, They are all born from Abraham. So he's Leveling the playing field once again, which we saw all throughout verse two or chapter two and chapter three, he was leveling the playing field. He was saying, "Look, no one is righteous. No one is any better than anyone. Don't judge each other." He's trying to. So he's still on this leveling the playing field idea. This father of us all. So he's finding common ground and he's speaking to the Jews right now who would have the knowledge, the, the scrolls as part of their culture to learn the scripture. The, he's not, the Gentiles wouldn't know anything about Abraham, the lineage of Abraham. He, so right now he's really focusing on them because they have the knowledge and he's using that to, to, um, for them to be familiar with what he has to say. So Abraham was discipled by Noah and Shem, um, and then his sons, um, Isaac and Jacob, were both discipled. So, let's see, verse uh, 2. Was it by his good works of keeping the law? And, uh, no, for it was by the things he did. He would, if it was by the things he did, he would have something to boast about. But no one boasts before God. So, it's interesting that, I mean, was it the actions that he took or was it that he believed what God told him? 
Well, he acted on his belief. So ultimately, the root of his righteousness was because of his belief. He believed what the Lord told him, and he acted according to that belief. If it was just his actions, if he just went about his actions and said, well, I did this because the Lord told me to do it, and that's the only reason I need to do it, he would have something to boast about. But we already read in Romans 3, uh, 23, that all fall short of the glory of God. So there's no, there's no way for him to be justified before God. Um, so in essence, there's, boasting is nothing before God. You could boast about yourself all you want before God, but it's meaningless because you are not righteous. You fall short of his glory. You're not perfect. We all suffer from death, therefore we all suffer from sin. If we were sinless, then we wouldn't suffer from death. So, this, so he couldn't boast about what he did, so it had to be something else other than his actions. Uh, verse 3, uh, listen to what the Scripture says, because Abraham believed God's words, his faith transferred God's righteousness unto his account. So, this is said multiple times throughout uh, the account of Abraham, that he was counted righteous. Because uh, he believed, he was counted righteous. I counted a half a dozen times just in studying these two uh, chapters. There's probably, um, probably more than that. In Genesis, where it says that he is counted righteous, for his belief. I lost my place. Here we go. So, so he was counted righteous because of his faith. So, and then it goes on, um, verse 4, when people work, they earn wages. They can't be considered a free gift because they earned it. So if, if it was righteous because of his works or because of something he earned, then that means he, owed, he was owed something. So think about a relationship you've had where you were owed something. And what I've found is that being owed something shifts the balance of power. If you're feeling like you're owed something from someone, there are, there are feelings that rise up that your flesh brings to the surface. Or think about things like um, important or haughty, masterful, uh, pretentious, lofty. These are things that might rise up in a relationship you have where you're owed something. Um, superior, arrogant. These things could rise up in that relationship where you, you're owed something. I've experienced that recently where I felt justified. I was owed something. I was owed monies for tasks performed. And I felt those justifications welling up. I felt those how, you know, I was like feeling superior, like I was in the right. I was justified. I was, I should have, I deserve this. There were these feelings that were rising up in me, and I, I recognized them, and I said, that's not love. 
that's not from the Spirit of God. He doesn't say that I should feel justified or arrogant or superior. He doesn't, his, those are not fruits of the Spirit. Humility are, is a fruit of the Spirit. So I realize that in those moments when you're starting to feel those emotions, you have to turn to humility. We'll break those. And, it, and you feel your flesh hurting, but that's part of humility is surrendering and um, experiencing that, that death of the flesh. So that's how we can overcome these, this balance of power, this idea that we're owed something. You can recognize these types of feelings, and, and you can recognize when you feel like your works are deserved of something. So that's, I believe that's what he's saying when he's talking about when you earn wages, um, it can't, you know, it's because you earned it. But no one earns God's righteousness, it says in verse 5. It can only be transferred when we no longer rely on our own works, but believe in the one who powerfully declares the ungodly to be righteous. In his eyes, it is the faith that transfers God's righteousness into our account. So, I wish my wife was here. She would have a story to tell right now. Um, in verse 6, I'm going to go ahead and move to uh, the New King James. He says, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So that word impute here means to deposit an account, take like a, to, yeah, deposit it into an account, basically. So... God imputes righteousness apart from works. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not count sin against. This is what he's saying, not impute sin. So that sin isn't being added to your account. And that's um, taken from Psalms 32, 1 through 2. Just to uh, reference that, let's go ahead and read that. Psalm 32, verse 1 through 2. NLT says, let the godly sing for joy to the Lord. It is fitting for the pure to praise him. Praise the Lord. Oh, that's 33, sorry. 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. 
So it's him who does the clearing of sin. It's him who does the forgiving. It's, it's, it, it doesn't say anything about us earning any of this. So as we go back into the story of Abraham, it says in uh, verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Then how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? So when was he... When was he made righteous or seen righteous by God? When, when was he... And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. So he was faithful, counted as righteous, and then circumcision was a sign of that. So he didn't need to be circumcised to be righteous. But he, but he chose that, he made that pact with the Lord. That's like we outwardly show our salvation, our our. With baptism, that's our circumcision. That's our, our uh, yeah, outward show, yes. And my wife says, don't forget to tell them that uh, they're talking to the Jews. I already said that. Thank you. So he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith in which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father to all those who believe. Those, we are uncircum those they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who also walk in the steps of of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So he's talking to the Jews, trying to mend this relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews. Look, you're circumcised. He understands the importance of that in your culture and in your lineage and in the promise. Abraham was also counted righteous without the circumcision. He's trying to get these guys to cool, calm down. Because the situation is getting out of hand. They're starting to feel self-righteous. They're starting to feel like they have to be put, everyone needs to be put under the law to be righteous. So he's trying to, to, to squash this. So in 13, he says, For the promise that he had, that he would be the heir of the world, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith 
that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So here Paul's referencing um, the agreement struck in uh, Genesis 17. So let's turn to Genesis 17. Here in uh, 17, we'll start in verse 3. At this, Abram fell down, face down on the ground. Then God said to him, This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. So Israel's one nation. So he's saying more than just Israel. There are, so, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you'll be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. So, in this covenant that he strikes with Abraham, he tells him, it's not just going to be one nation, it's going to be many nations. So that opens us up for the Gentiles to enter into this righteousness in the original covenant. So now he's speaking to those who are claiming that the law is the only way into righteousness. So in 18, um, back in Romans 4, we'll go into verse 18, he says, who, speaking of Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. So even though there was no hope, he continued moving forward and being obedient. There was, he knew there was a way out. When he was walking his son Isaac to the block, he said, in Genesis 22, he said, God will provide the sheep. God never said he was going to provide the sheep. God told him he was going to go sacrifice his son. But he also made a promise that he would be the father to many nations. So he stood firm on that promise even when there seemed to be no hope, 
he still said, he spoke truth that God will provide the sheep. King, uh, the NLT says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would be the father of many nations. So I have an experience that ties into Virginia this last week. It's not as epic as sacrificing your firstborn or secondborn, but it is moving forward in, in faith. Several weeks before we uh, left, my, my wife says, well, we have to do something because this hotel doesn't have a refrigerator, doesn't have a microwave. We can't afford to eat out every night. We're going to have to buy a mini fridge so that we can eat. I was like, that sounds ridiculous. I'm not going to buy a mini fridge to drive it up to Virginia to put it in a hotel, hotel room. So she's telling me this, what we have to do, because she's pretty specific about the food she eats. And eating out every day gets really expensive. And if you're on a time schedule, it's hard to get healthy food. Anyways, I understood what she was concerned about, but I didn't have peace in it. I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. We're not going to do that. We have to do it. And then she starts getting a little upset with me. And we were, uh, what was the? We were in intense fellowship. I said, look, the Lord is going to make a way. We just have to have faith. We have to just, and I, I was serious in this. I said, we just have to believe he's going to make a way for it. I understand your research. I understand you, you talked with the hotel. I understand what they're telling you, but I know we're not going to have to buy our refrigerator to go to this hotel. <laughs> I know it. So we stopped talking about it. And and she probably felt like we were probably going to go to Walmart as soon as we got there and buy a little fridge or something. I don't know what she was thinking, but I moved forward with my life without thinking about buying a mini fridge. So on the way up there, we go, we call, we want to do an early check-in, and they said, oh, your room was canceled. All our like, reservations were canceled. It's like, oh, my goodness. Now we don't even have a place to stay, right? But... They sorted it all out. We got rooms. Everything was fine. We go to check in. We go into our room, and there it is. Mini fridge and a microwave. So God had to cancel our reservation for us to be able to get what we needed for the trip. He knew what we needed, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So we were standing on the promise that he would give us the desires of our heart. We continued forward. Even though it didn't look like there was any reason to hope for it. So that was just a little testimony of, you know, moving forward uh, in hope when there was no hope. Um, so he still trusted God's promise. And uh, so let's go, go ahead and move into 19. Um, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God 
and being faithfully con- convinced that what he had, what had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. His belief and conviction in the promises of God, knowing God would come through and perform, that was what his righteousness came from. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So it's not what we do. It's not where we were born, who our parents were. It's not this law. It's belief in God that his promises are true. It's a heart posture. It's your heart. You don't need... You know, we hear about all these laws and we want to we vote and put these people in offices that are going to change the laws. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but what I really want to see is that the people's hearts change so these laws are meaningless. It's not about what the law says or doesn't say. It's about the people who utilize those laws. Those are the hearts that need to change. If the law says it's okay for you to do such and such, if no one wants to do it, that law is powerless and meaningless. So it's the hearts of the people that need to change before the laws are going to change. So let's go ahead and move into uh, Romans chapter 5. I swear there's good news ahead. Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 1 and 2. Um, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. We have peace with God. That is not the peace of God. That is peace with God. That is, I'm getting an amen from the sound booth. (laughs) That is peace with God. That is a covenant with God. That is a relationship with God. That is not him only, but us as well. We, We have peace with him. It's relationship, exactly. Peace with God. Later on, we, hear, we learn about the peace of God, and God can pour his peace out. And there is a peace of him that, that is his, but this is talking about a peace with him, a relationship with him. And then it goes on to say, through whom also we have access by faith, into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we stand in his grace. We stand in his grace. By faith, we have access 
to this grace in which we stand. So what does it look like to stand in grace? Uh, William Newell studied at the Moody uh, College in uh, Massachusetts that we went and prayed over the 10 days of prayer uh, a couple years ago. Um, he studied there, and he, he had a proper attitudes of a man under grace, so a man standing under grace. To believe and consent to be loved while unworthy is the great secret. That's the greatest secret of standing in God's grace. We are loved while unworthy. To refuse to make resolutions and vows, for that is to trust in the flesh. That is to trust in your actions, your abilities to make you righteous. To expect to be blessed, though realizing more and more lack of worth. To be blessed, to be showered with his love, to be, for his love to be tangible in our lives, all the while seeing more and more of how you can't earn that. To testify of God's goodness at all times. Number five, to be certain of God's future favor, yet to be even more tender in conscience towards him. Number six, to rely on God's chastening hand as a mark of his kindness. So recognizing that ushering, that handsy parenting, that and just recognize it as his love and kindness for us. There are times we need to be straightened out. We need to be set straight and right. And he'll, do, he'll give us opportunities to experience that. And it's out of his kindness. And lastly, a man under grace is like Paul has no burdens regarding himself, but many about others. So you no longer carry these burdens about what am I going to do, how am I going to, who am I, that, you know, your, your focus is now on who, who are you, who, who is Pat, Patsy, you know, how do I, how do I honor her, how do I serve, serve her? Um, it's no longer about me. So there's seven different uh, attitudes of a man under grace. So, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, not, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has, give, who has given to us. Well, I'm going to read that in the uh, NLT. The first time I read that scripture was in the NLT. And that's um, Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, 
For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead us to disappointment. For we know who dear, how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with this love. Jim. So I, uh, I put out a squirrel trap this week. Squirrel trap. Squirrel trap is supposed to catch 25 squirrels. Squirrels are smart. They haven't gone into it yet. But this morning when I woke up, I did catch something. I caught a possum. How that possum got in the squirrel trap, I'm not sure. But he was in there. I was very kind to the possum. So you know how you get kind to a possum? You put a cloth over the trap. And I took the possum very kindly in the back of my car, quietly, on over the Cape Fear River, where I was going to release the possum down by the Cape Fear River, down by Wilmington's Dock. So I did that. I, I released it. I, I opened the trap and, and put it and tried to shake it. But the possum wouldn't come out of the trap. I mean, it was trying to get up by the edge. It was curling into a ball. It was hissing. It was doing everything it could to stay in the trap. And if it just back out a little bit, it would have discovered its exit. Finally, after a few moments, as the story goes, the, the possum shifted and realized, oh, there's a way out. And it just slid on down like a possum does. And it got out of the trap, and off it went, happy as could be. So I say a lot today to, to tell you that this, in these last two, three weeks, I was like that possum, <laughs> you know. I, I had put myself in a situation before the Lord knew it was even good. Well, the Lord knew, but before I knew it was going to happen, I backed myself into a trap. And the Lord had provided to me a way of escape. But I kept crawling in the corner and doing everything I could to get out of what God was providing for me. And please don't get me wrong. I wasn't, I wasn't sinning. I wasn't seeing what God was doing. Hmm? Y'all ever go through that? You don't see what God's plan is, and you're like backing yourself into a corner, and it gets tighter and harder, and you're gnawing against metal. And God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to take a moment, listen to what is tonight being said in Romans in our lives, and ask us, clearly ask us, what are we doing, all you all here right now, and you on live stream, what are we doing that's backing us into a trap? And are we hearing the word of God, which is disciplining us, which is correcting us, which is helping us? There's a child that belongs to God. There's a child that does not belong to God. The child that belongs to God will get corrected by him gently, quietly, but you'll hear his word. So that's what I have, and the possum's doing fine. <laughs> Amen. So these trials that Jim went through created endurance. So the next trial that he goes through, he's going to have that strength to rely on. So my wife just texted me to share both of these testimonies that I have. She says, share both the testimonies, babe. You're doing great. All big letters. <laughs> so thank you, Alicia. So this scripture... Romans 5, uh, 3 through 5, has been a really pivotal 
scripture for me in my life, uh, in my Christian growth, in my relationships with others, in my professional career, in all aspects of my life. This scripture it has really uh, done a work in me. And I have two experiences um, to kind of develop that. About three years ago, three years and three weeks ago, I left a job that I was at for five and a half years. It was a job that meant a lot to me. I put a lot of time and energy into it. It was a job in Alaska when I first moved here. I, I met all of you, and I would be here for a couple weeks, and then I would disappear for a couple weeks. And then I would come back for a couple weeks. And that's how I built most of my relationships with, with you all here. And what I was doing was I was working for three weeks in Alaska, and I was coming home and living in Wilmington for three weeks. And I was working in an oil field. And at the time, I was operating a facility. And then it was a very important facility. It didn't pay a whole lot. It paid a good wage, but um, it was a very integral part of the oil field. If my facility went down, I affected BP across a multi-billion dollar scale. <laughs> so it was very important. I felt like... I had a really cool job. Well, in that job, I, spent, I was able to spend a lot of time in the Word. Uh, I spent a lot of time in worship, and the Lord put me in a position where I could focus a lot of time learning who I was in the Word and molding me and shaping me in the Word. It wasn't like that the whole time I worked there. But it was like that for the last couple of years I worked there. The first couple of years I worked there, I was a different person. I was a very heavy drinker. I smoked copious amounts of marijuana. And I thanked the Lord every time I passed a urine test, a drug test, because he was the only thing keeping me employed. But th that was, and I, I cursed like a sailor. I had accepted Jesus, but I was, I had no concept of identity in Christ. I didn't know what it meant to be a son of the living God. I didn't know who the scripture told me. That wasn't who I was. And I was an angry, angry human being. I was born angry. When I was very young, I used to pound my head on the floor when I couldn't get fed in time. I was that angry. I was like, ever since I was born, I would punch holes in walls. I would break doors. Like as a young child, eight years old, I could slam a door and break it right off the hinges at eight years old. I would punch a hole in, into a sheetrock wall, no problem, as a 12-year-old. Um, all through high school, angry. I didn't lash out at people. But I was very angry. I was very explosive. And when I started working in the oil field around a bunch of men and a bunch of metal and a bunch of oil, I was just the angry guy. And it hurt a lot of my relationships, but it also put me in positions that I wasn't comfortable in, and people didn't treat me well. So I had to deal with 
people's incompetence. I had to deal with them, you know, breaking the rules, um, slandering each other. It was all that, all that coworker stuff. But it was like on steroids because it was the north slope of Alaska. It was like the top of the world all alone for weeks at a time. So I was like, anyways, so I fit right in. And if someone lied to me or if I was accused of something, I was explosive. I was very verbal. I was breaking things. I was yelling, cursing. That's who I was when I started. So flash fast forward a couple of years and I get start diving into the word. I start learning who I am. The Lord reaches out and touches me in the North Slope. I'm sitting there all alone at three o'clock in the morning uh, listening to um, Kim Walker Smith reading Romans and it all clicks. It makes sense. I understand who I am. I understand who, the, what the word is and and what the word is for, and I start, and it just comes alive in my life. Uh, my wife is, in the same moments, my wife is radically broken free of alcoholism, oh, almost a thousand miles away. Um, so our life changed drastically almost overnight. And I just start, all I do is just stay in the word, and stay in worship, and getting towards the end of the story here. I get, we're doing a turnaround. We're trying to uh, schedule how we're going to operate the facility during, while the facility shut down. We're bringing in these units, these big boiler units to transfer fluids and how we're going to mix it. And we're having these meetings and we get this whole design, all these upright tanks and how we're going to run all the piping. And so we have all this huge plan the people that are going to be part of the plan come in to see me at the plant, and I, we go over the plan together. I think everything's good. Um, they leave, and I get pulled into the office the next day. They said, they didn't just pull me into the office. They walked onto my pad, told me to pack all my things, and leave right now. I no idea what's going on. And they pull me off the pad, bring somebody in to take over, no warning, no anything. And they start reading to me this list of things that I was being accused of. And it was 100% fabricated lies of uh, how I reacted to these um, people in charge, how I, you know, my, my reactions, what I said, all of it fabricated. And in that moment, I remembered this scripture that in trials develop endurance. Endurance develops strength and character. And character and strength strengthens our, our hope. So there's this building that happens in those trials. And my flesh wanted to react, but who I was now knew what was going on. I knew it was a trial. I knew it was, I was going to grow from this somehow. So I had been completely transformed to who I was four years prior to that. 
because I was put in those trials to develop that endurance. I was developing that endurance so that I can be strengthened. My character would change. And through the character and strengthening, my hope was that the Lord had a plan. So I had a choice to agree to these lies and go back to work and try to work my way back into favor. There was an option. I could have stayed there. I would have took a little bit of a pay cut, but... Or have some integrity, not admit to these lies and understand the Lord was calling me into something new and I made that decision to stay here in Wilmington. And the day I made that decision, I was offered a job which started my life here in Wilmington. So, praise the Lord. It was a, it was a complete change. And, and now I see the change through those trials. What the development that's happened in those trials, because I have this frame of where I was and where I am now. So, I hope you can look at your trials and know that it's building endurance. My wife yesterday, my, <laughs> my wife yesterday told me, um, she says, I see you sometimes with these difficult people, and you have this grace on you, and it has to be the Holy Spirit. I said, oh, I said, yeah, it has to be, because I'm not feeling very graceful. <laughs> and uh, I, when we read through this again, I was reminded of that, because three years ago, I was in construction here in Wilmington, and I was working with some very difficult people. They were incompetent. They were young. They were trying my patience regularly. And we were in a job that was on our knees in a crawl space for like five weeks straight, digging holes, pouring concrete, setting piers. It was a miserable job. And these guys were not helping me out with my countenance. And there were a few times when these difficult people that I was working with, I lashed out at them. It was my flesh rising up again. It was more of these trials that I was dealing with. And I count that moment, those moments, those weeks, as building me into a new character so that now my wife sees the grace that the Lord has in those relationships. She doesn't see me reacting negatively she doesn't, she doesn't see, thank you, B. I I love you too. She doesn't see that old Daniel anymore because the Lord's been building in that character, building in that endurance and strengthening. And my hope in the future is, it's amazing. So thank you, Lord. That's just another confirmation in what, what he's talking about here. Um, all right, we're cutting short on time here. Let's try to blast through the rest of this chapter. <laughs> Not going to happen, sorry. <laughs> um, so we have our trials, and it builds character, and then we move on to uh, verse 6. Let's go ahead and move on. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came. This is the NLT, sorry. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came to came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Christ came at just the right time. That's what we were talking about. 
Abraham didn't have the law. Then he brought the law. Then we were mature through the law. Christ came at the right time to release us from that law. Um, Seven goes on to say, now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. This scripture was interesting to me because, let me pull this up in uh, NKJV. He says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. So he's saying there's a difference between a righteous man and a good man, for one thing. And that most likely someone wouldn't lay their life down for a righteous man. Why? How does that even work? Well, in trying to figure this out, I found a... uh, really good. I don't know if you guys use the uh, Blue Letter Bible app, but there's a lot of really good commentaries. There's a lot of good references, materials. You can use the concordance to get into the Greek and Hebrew words. And I just, I would suggest everyone get the Blue, Blue Letter Bible app. It's amazing. But in there, it talks about the difference between a righteous man and a good man. And um, this one study says that righteousness in is in a, the man's personal life. And the righteousness is your belief in God, your faith. It's personal. Your righteousness, you could be a hermit and never interact with anybody and have, believe in God's promises and have faith in God and be counted as righteous. But no one else around you would see that. That's personal. That's, in, that's internal. That's a relationship between you and the Lord. Now, a good man goes beyond that by also being kind and benevolent. So the good man is the one who has the actions as well. He's seen. So that's why someone would most likely not give their life for a righteous man because they have a personal relationship making them righteous. But they, would prob- they could give their life for a good man because a good man is someone who has outward actions that make him good, that he's seen as good. So that was just kind of, I just, just to kind of uh, hash that out and figure out, you know, what, is, what does that even mean? Um, and then we go into eight and he says, but God showed us great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So it didn't matter if we were righteous or good or not righteous or not good. We were actually sinning still, and he sent his son to die. So, so he's even more righteous and, and than we could ever imagine. Um, verse 9, since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our relationship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us, his, made us friends of God. 
So we have something to rejoice about. Finally. We have friendship with God. We're restored by the death of his son. Even though we were enemies, he still saved us. We have a new relationship. Thank you, Lord. So, um, we're kind of running out of time now. He's going to go into Adam and Christ. How, you know, sin came into the world by one man, and it's been covered by one man. It's a reflection. Or a, a lot of times you see that in Scripture where you start, you move in, and then it's reflected by the end. It's like symmetrical almost um, in a lot of, like, you bring you start in in perfection and righteousness, you go through the fall, and then you go into redemption, back into righteousness, and it's uh, it's mirroring each other, um, but contrasted at the same time. So let's go ahead and just skip to eighteen. He says, um, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone because one person disobeyed God. Many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people who see how sinful they were but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin ruled over all people and brought them to death. So that's how we know that no one, what is, uh, how does it say in uh, 33, all fall short of the glory of God for everyone has sinned. How do we know everyone has sinned? How do we know that though? Because everyone dies. Death and sin are tied together. Before sin, there was no death. So we know that all have sinned because all have died. So that will bring us to the end of chapter 5. We'll uh, get into chapter 6 and 7 next week. Um, Lord, I just thank you for... Thank you for uh, your words tonight. Thank you for... Just your spirit pouring out of these of these pages. Um, you gave us uh, you gave us the word to know you. You gave us the word to, the word. Corey today, Corey told me, you know, if you take all the instances out where it says Jesus Christ and you put the word in there, it says that the word didn't come to rule, but to serve. So we know you gave us your word not to rule us, but to serve us, to show us who you are, for us to learn from 
And, and uh, we just thank you for that, Lord. We bless it in Jesus' name. Thanks, guys.